All right. Good morning. We are wrapping up our series on core values today um, by combining the last two into one message, because these two, I believe, uh, have so much overlap between them. They, they really all uh, have some overlap, but these two have so much overlap, I think it's really helpful to talk about them together. That is relational IQ and courage. So as we've gone through these, I think one thing that people often notice is that some of these are really easy to identify in scripture. We've talked about the core value of being self-fed, right? The idea that I am responsible for my relationship with God. Therefore, I create practices and habits in my life to connect me with God. That seems very easy to find in scripture. We've talked about servant leadership, which again, obvious in scripture that servant leadership is how uh, Jesus and his disciples led and how God uh, wanted all leaders to lead. And we talked about being spirit led. Very obvious that being led by the Holy Spirit is present in scripture. But when we get to these last two, sometimes people go, I don't know where you're getting that. Relational IQ doesn't sound like a very spiritual term, does it? right? And, and courage, where do we see these things show up in the lives of Jesus and the disciples? But I think that they're very evident when you take some time to understand what these mean and you look at the life of Jesus and those who came after him, you can see these uh, values at work. And uh, we believe that they are absolutely uh, a way that we can grow towards Jesus-centered living as we grow in, in these values, um, and so we're gonna dive into that today. We'll be in John chapter eight here in a moment. But I wanna take you back for a moment to 1962. Anybody remember 1962? Who was there? You guys remember? Yeah, y'all were like three years old. I know, you guys were not. Uh, but in uh, October uh, of 1962, October 14th, something very significant happened on that day. Um, a U.S. spy plane uh, flying over Cuba, took photographs of a missile base being built on the island of Cuba. And this obviously created quite a stir. The U.S. had tried to kind of uh, overtake Cuba in the uh, infamous failed Bay of Pigs invasion. And now Cuba has sort of created this alliance with Russia to protect themselves. And Russia is building a missile base on Cuba. So this creates uh, terror immediately. The White House uh, begins to respond, and, and they, they kind of come up with three basic options for a response. One is airstrike and invade Cuba. We've got to get rid of the, this missile base. We can't allow this to go operational. The second is more of a passive approach to say, like, we, let's just tell them to stop, right? That's the, the diplomatic approach. Let's tell them to knock it off. Um, and what Kennedy chose was actually a sort of a third, uh, a middle ground where he did issue a stern warning, but he also um, imposed what was called a quarantine. That was called a blockade in the news, but the official term was quarantine because a blockade implies that you're at war and he didn't want to imply that. So he called it a quarantine. So they could, uh, the US Navy was stopping ships going to Cuba to check them for uh, weapons, uh, particularly uh, anything from Russia. And so um, about a week later, Khrushchev, the, the leader of Russia, makes a statement that this, this quarantine is, a, is actually an act of aggression. He called it a blockade. And he said, this is an act of aggression. We're gonna ignore it completely. And you know we'll see what happens. He didn't actually ignore it though. So there were some ships from Russia that ended up turning around uh, at the quarantine. So kind of getting mixed messages already. Um, some more intelligence comes in on October 24th. 
So this is after 10 days of of kind of this tense, uh, high anxiety uh, situation that uh, the the missile base is becoming very close to being operational and there's there's a lot of fear. um, And and some of you guys might remember this. There's a lot of fear that at any moment, nuclear war is gonna break out between the US and Russia, right? So the advisors, many advisors, particularly military advisors, are telling Kennedy, we have to attack. We cannot allow this base to go operational. We have to destroy it. That's that our only option. We attack before we get attacked was, was the option. But Kennedy was determined to find a diplomatic solution. Um, and in the process, uh, a message comes through a reporter named John Scully, an ABC reporter, who uh, goes to the White House and says that a Russian agent had contacted him and told him that Khrushchev is willing to negotiate. This was it's called what a back-channel arrangement, so not through the normal diplomatic process. So there's some doubt about whether this is real and could be believed or not. Later that night, Khrushchev sends a, a, a letter, a message directly to the White House that kind of was emotional and it laid out this idea of like, no one really wants nuclear war. And that was his position. And so there's some encouragement now that maybe uh, Khrushchev is willing to negotiate. The next day though, Khrushchev makes a public statement in Russia that is, that reaches the United States that unless the US removes their missiles from Turkey, he's going to attack. Well, that's very different from the message of I'm willing to negotiate and no wants nuclear war. So now Kennedy has to decide which message he's going to respond to. If, if he really believes that Khrushchev is gonna attack, his only option is to invade Cuba and destroy that missile base. He chooses to ignore that threat and to respond to the offer for peace. So he again issues a warning, but he says, if the Russians will remove the missiles from Cuba, we promise not to invade Cuba. And the next day, the missiles went away. Now, you believe, I don't know where you stand on Kennedy and all the politics of that, but what, what happened here was someone who demonstrated the exact values that we're talking about, relational IQ and courage, this ability to recognize the anxiety going on in the people around him and to choose a courageous path because the path that he chose was very risky. If he had been wrong, there would have been trouble. In fact, in his memoirs, Khrushchev himself said that if the US had attacked, they would have been able to get off at least one missile that they were prepared to fire at either Washington DC or New York. So it was risky, but it absolutely worked. And he did that through values that we would call relational IQ and courage. So we're gonna take a look at um, the power behind these skills and learning to live this way. I mean, you can see how there are are situations in your own life where these values can help diffuse situations and find paths to peace and lead to better and healthier relationships. So we're gonna look at Jesus as a model uh, from John chapter eight. And I know that whenever we hold up Jesus as a model, a lot of people sort of check out and go, well, you know, that's Jesus. He was perfect. I'm not. So I'm not really sure that holding him up as an example is helpful to me. 
But what we believe when we read scripture is that Jesus did everything he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he told his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you're gonna do even greater things than I did. So we're convinced Jesus thought we could do anything that he could do and more through the power of the Holy Spirit. So um, when we look to Jesus as an example, we acknowledge that we have the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus uh, enabling us to do what he did. So let's jump into John chapter eight. Um, this really uh, powerful story, uh, beginning in verse two. If you see anything on the screen that's underlined, I invite you to read that aloud. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? In order to have a basis for accusing him. So I want us to just sit in this story, this scene for a moment and recognize the tension that's here. The high levels of anxiety with at least three different groups of people that make this a a scene that's just loaded with tension and anxiety. And it's a life or death scenario. So they've, they've brought this woman uh, guilty of a capital offense. Like the punishment is death. And they put this before Jesus. What do you say? Should she live or die? And so what we wanna recognize uh, first is that th- this is just packed with anxiety and anxiety can cause us to respond in uh, sometimes unhealthy ways. So let's talk about anxiety just for a moment before we get into where this, we see this in this story. Anxiety typically, it comes from the potential of losing or gaining something that we feel is essential. So whenever you feel like you have something essential to gain or lose, it creates anxiety. So it could be a positive that, that you, you have this potential to gain maybe a, a good relationship or a promotion or uh, there's something like that you just feel is necessary for your um, livelihood that you, ha- you stand to gain that can create anxiety. Or if you feel like there's something that you could lose that would affect your livelihood, your quality of life, your relationships, the people that you care about, then it creates anxiety. And there is anxiety all over this story. We start with the religious leaders. The religious leaders, uh, the Pharisees were passionate about upholding the Torah, the, the law of Moses, because that was their identity as the people of God. They, they believed that the way that we obey and, and fulfill the Torah, the, the law of Moses, um, defines who we are as God's people. And they were really passionate about that to, to the point of anybody who threatened the law of Moses really their interpretation of the law of Moses was a threat to their very identity as the people of God. So that's why they were so disturbed by Jesus's teaching is because they saw Jesus as a threat to the law of Moses, their interpretation of the Torah. So they bring this question to him right there in black and white to trap him because if Jesus is really undermining the law of Moses, then he is a threat not just to the Pharisees, but to the whole nation of Israel, to all of the descendants of Abraham, and he must be done away with. 
So that's their anxiety. What they feel they have to lose is their identity as a people. If we allow this teacher to go on, we'll lose our identity as a people. So how does Jesus, how is he going to respond to the high levels of anxiety coming from these powerful religious leaders? Well, he's got some options. He could choose to placate them, right? To placate them, just to pacify them, to try to relieve their anxiety by allying himself with them and saying, you know what? You're, you're absolutely right. If, if it says it in the law of Moses, then we should do it. Go ahead and stone her. That would have been an effort to placate them, Jesus trying to lower their anxiety by agreeing with their demands. He could also choose to provoke them. He could see them as enemies of his mission and he could try to provoke them and like blow up their anxiety by saying, you know what? You guys just take the law too seriously. You know, this whole law of Moses thing, it's, you're, you're making it into something that it's not. It's not that important. Stop trying to prove yourselves by being righteous. Just ignore this and go on with your lives. That would have absolutely provoked uh, those religious leaders. Or another path he could have taken is just um, apathy, just to check out and say, you know what? This is not my problem. You guys figure it out for yourselves. Those are some of the ways that Jesus could have responded to the anxiety of the powerful people uh, that were in front of him. And I think we recognize we have those opportunities whenever we're faced with anxiety and others as well. We can try to placate somebody, lower the anxiety. We can, we can see them as an enemy and we can try to provoke them or we can just check out completely. The other group that has anxiety is the crowd. The crowd is the people who have been listening to Jesus. They, they're starting to believe his message. They've seen him perform miracles. They know that he's something special. And many are starting to believe that maybe he is actually the Messiah, the one who's gonna come and set them free from Roman rule. And so they're wondering, how is Jesus going to respond? If Jesus just goes along with the Pharisees, then maybe he's not the leader that we thought he was, or maybe Jesus is gonna use this as an opportunity to challenge Rome. Because the Roman law at the time was, only Rome can execute people. And so if the Jews go ahead with this execution, they're actually breaking Roman law. It puts them in opposition to Rome and it would be seen as an act of rebellion. So if Jesus condones the execution, then he is breaking Roman law and he is sort of starting a rebellion against Rome, which some of the people, that's exactly what they wanted. While others have heard him teach about mercy and kindness and forgiveness and grace and they're wondering, what is this gonna look like in real life when he's faced with this situation. So the crowd has great anxiety over this as well because for them, they're either gonna gain a Messiah or lose a Messiah, depending on how Jesus answers this question. And the final source of anxiety is obviously the woman, right? She is in a life or death situation. She is guilty and her guilt is made public. Can you imagine the anxiety if you came up on this stage and we announced your greatest sin. <laughs> and also, there are people calling for her death. So she is very invested in how Jesus responds to this question, right? And Jesus has options. He can respond to the crowd's anxiety in a very sort of politically expedient way by trying to figure out what it is that they wanna hear. Let me just say what they wanna hear. He could have responded by um, acknowledging their desire for a rebellion and 
going after Rome and figuring out how can I stir this crowd up and start a rebellion and give them what they want. Or again, he could have checked out and said, you know what, this is not my problem. You guys figure it out on your own. Let's see how Jesus actually did respond. Let's pick up in verse six. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Jesus actually does none of the things that we would expect someone to do if they're trying to manage the anxiety of the people around them, to lower it, to fire it up. He, he's, he's not doing any of the things that we would expect him to do. What he does is he recognizes the tenseness of the situation. He recognizes the, the different wants or needs of all the people. He acknowledges that. And he, he does something that uh, we don't know what he wrote on the ground, but we, we at least can recognize that this is diffusing things in a way. It's, it's creating some space for everyone to just breathe for a minute while they're waiting for him to finish writing whatever he's writing on the ground. And so he, he takes this time to give everyone a chance to breathe. Uh, and I think what Jesus is doing is something that we would call relational IQ. He is uh, able to recognize the anxiety of the people around him. Now, uh, we need to learn to do that as well. I think we typically, we believe that we can. I, I think our challenge is we try to find the source of it. Our, we, we always wanna know why. why. Why is somebody anxious? We can't always know that. Um, we, we can recognize that someone is anxious, but we don't always know why. Now, sometimes it's obvious if there's been a loss, um, a death, if there's grief, if there's sickness, if there's conflict, or if there's blessing, if someone has received a, an inheritance, if there's a wedding, if there's the birth of a child, a grandchild, and we can recognize this can create anxiety for people but often we don't know the source and um, our efforts to try to find the source are sometimes just a distraction. Um, what we do is we recognize that there's um, anxiety through body language. You can tell by how people uh, present themselves, if they're pacing, if their uh, fists are clenched, if they're withdrawing physically. Um, you can tell by their tone of voice, if their voice goes up high or if it drops down to a whisper. Um, th those are some signs that we Read. So we pay attention to these signs. We recognize the anxiety in others. And something that we have to do that Jesus probably didn't do in this moment was we have to recognize the anxiety in ourselves. We have to recognize our own fears that we're bringing into this situation as well. And uh, in the process of doing this, we wanna land in a place that we call differentiation, okay? Let me uh, walk you through this really quickly. Um, this is really helpful to me, uh, hopefully to you as well. In our relationships, we have, uh, there is this spectrum of connectedness with the people around us that we find ourselves in. Um, and we're all in, in, we're somewhere on this line with all the people in our lives, all the different relationships that we have. The detached position on the far end of that 
would be someone who just says, I'm out. I, I can't deal with this. I don't want to talk about it. Um, don't, don't bring it up or just it's silent treatment or whatever on a particular issue or with a particular person. That's detachment. It's just removing themselves. Then I, I, don't, I, I can't care about this. I don't want to care about this. I don't want to be involved. That's, that's on the far end of detachment. On the, the uh, other end of the spectrum is what we call enmeshment. And that is being so invested <clears throat> in the emotions of the people around that it impacts my emotions. It's the, it's the place where I say, if you're not happy, I can't be happy. Your, your frustration is, is making me frustrated. Like your sadness is making me sad. Like I am being actually controlled by someone else's emotions. That's, that's what we call enmeshment. And the place in the middle is differentiation. It's this place of being able to say, I, I recognize your anxiety, but I'm not gonna be controlled by it and I'm not gonna remove myself from it. Steve Cuss defines it this way. It's lowering reactivity while staying connected. Differentiation is lowering my reactivity while staying connected. And we see this is exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't react in, in a way to try to respond directly to the emotions of the people around him, but he also doesn't withdraw. He stays connected, he stays in the moment, but he doesn't let the anxiety of the people around him control him or determine his response. That's differentiation. And that is what I think we need to move towards. That's relational IQ is that ability um, to recognize that anxiety in the people around us. And then to stand in that middle place requires courage. To stand in that middle place requires courage. As we recognize anxiety, it awakes compassion in us. When we notice that other people are upset, then we have a heart for them because we understand what anxiety feels like and we can relate and we sympathize. So what Jesus does in this moment is he acts on what's more important, what's most important, um, Everyone has something they feel like they can gain or lose in this situation. And Jesus is gonna hold up something that matters more than all of that. When he tells them, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. What, what value is he holding up? I think it's this idea of, of grace that we, we acknowledge that we're sinners. And so, man, we, we gotta be very slow to throw stones at other people for their sins or maybe not at all. And Jesus, this is a brilliant um, diplomatic tactic, by the way, is for him to put the ball back in their court. And he doesn't tell them what to do, but he puts them in a position where they have to make a choice for themselves. Whoever's without sin Cast the first stone. And the words that he speaks to the woman, listen to this. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Jesus is holding up two values here that he says are more important than anything else anyone is anxious about in this moment. And they are grace and truth. Do you hear the grace in neither do I condemn you? If anyone had the moral authority to throw a stone, who was it? Jesus. And his response, I'm not here to condemn you. Echoing words from a few chapters before in John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. 
Jesus says, I'm not here to condemn you. That's the grace. And do you hear the truth in, now go and leave your life of sin? Do you hear that? Truth in that. Like there is a way that you were created to live. There's a way that God envisions your life to go and this is not part of it. So walk away from these things that are not part of the way that God created you to live. Receive the grace as an opportunity to do better, right? Grace and truth. When Jesus stands in this differentiated place in the middle and he holds up these two values of grace and truth, he is demonstrating courage. This is the ability to act according to his values, to God's values, despite the anxieties of the people around him. And I think this is where we find ourselves living with regrets at times. When we act in a way that doesn't line up with our own values because of anxiety, either in us or in the people around us. Can you think about times when that's happened for you? You've allowed someone else's anxiety to call words out of your mouth that you can't take back, but you so wish you could. When you allow your own anxiety to lead you to make a decision that's not what's best for you or your family or the people around you. But it takes courage to stand in this middle place and say it like, okay, I'm anxious, you're anxious, but what's most important? How can we hold up what matters most in this moment? And often in our relationships, we can do the same thing as Jesus and really elevate grace and truth. Grace and truth. I'm not here to condemn anyone but I recognize that I was created to live a certain way and I just wanna lean into that. That's what Jesus does and that's what he allows us to do and this differentiation sets us free to do that. We can't really respond with authentic grace and truth if we are detached, we've checked out or if we're enmeshed in a sense of your emotions are gonna be my emotions. I'm just gonna feed off of whatever you're feeling. And just so we know that Jesus is not the only one in the New Testament who can do this, I wanna point out um, an event from Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter four, Peter and John go to the temple, they heal a lame man, and then a crowd gathers as a response to this miracle and they preach a sermon. Peter preaches a sermon about the resurrection of Jesus. And the same people who were trying to trap Jesus in John chapter eight and all, really all through the gospels who were threatened, they felt their identity as a people threatened by Jesus's teaching. They're also threatened by someone saying that Jesus rose from the dead. These same people have a response to Peter's sermon. This is it from Acts 4.2. It says, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Okay, do you see the anxiety? They're greatly disturbed about this teaching of the, of the resurrection of the dead because again, it threatens their identity as a people. They've already rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They've already said he's not the guy. And if people are saying that he rose from the dead, that, that just turns upside down everything that they believe in. So their anxiety is high. So they bring Peter and John in and they say, knock it off. You, you can't keep talking about Jesus. This is what we would call cancel culture, right? This is not new. This is that tendency in us to shut down any voice that threatens our own perspective, right? What do Peter and John say? Hey, we saw him die 
And then we had breakfast with him on the beach a few days later. How are we gonna stop talking about that? There is absolutely no way we're gonna stop talking about that. You can do to us whatever you wanna do to us, but we cannot stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus. It's not gonna happen. And here's the response of the religious leaders. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. My goal in life is to be able to put my name in Peter and John's place right there. I want at some point in my life, somebody to say when they saw the courage of Adam Coulter and realized he's an unschooled, ordinary dude, they were astonished and took note that he had been with Jesus. Man, I want you to put your name in that blank too. I want you to be someone that they say this about. I mean, it's just an ordinary person. It's just Jason. It's just Andy. It's just David. But man, he's got courage. Must be the impact of Jesus in his life. That's what I want people to say about me and about you. And I think that we can grow in this relational IQ and courage. When we do, when we recognize the anxiety in ourselves and the people around us, and we still choose to act according to our values, which are God's values, what we do is we open up opportunities for relationship, for grace and truth. We become peacemakers. We become comforters. We become encouragers. We become wellsprings of grace and truth in a way that relieves doubts and fears and diffuses anger, where people find kindness and respect and where they get to hear challenging truth from people who love them. Man, when we get this right, these two values come together in our lives. Relationships get better, families get stronger, church families get stronger, and communities take notice. And they say, <laughs> I, I, those, are just, those are just normal people over there at Cicero Christian Church. I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know what's going on over there, but they've got some courage. And I wonder if something beyond them is fueling that. I wonder if it's something supernatural. I wonder if it's something related to their faith, what they believe in that enables them to live like they live, to act like they act, to give like they give, to forgive like they forgive. We've been with Jesus. This world needs more people who are equipped with relational IQ and courage. Can you see that? Man, it is a hot commodity. And we, the people of God, are the most equipped to do this because we have the spirit of God in us that enabled Jesus to do this, Peter and John to do this, the same spirit lives in us. If anybody should get this right in the world that we live in, it should be us. It requires stepping into discomfort. So we're gonna do that right now. (laughs) Some of you are like, oh shoot. This is one of those sermons. So here's, here's what I'd like for us to do. Um, you guys know, if you've been around a while, that we are, we are trying to lean into things that create participation in our gatherings. So we're not, you're not here just to be a spectator. This is a family and we're, we're gonna interact and talk with each other. If you're new, you need to know that we don't, what we're about to do this is the first time. So every, it's, it's weird for everybody, okay? So, but what I want you to do is have just two minutes of discussion about what we just learned. Okay, just two minutes of discussion with the people around you. 
So this is an opportunity to demonstrate some courage, especially if you don't know a lot of people here or if you're sitting by yourself, you have to move and, and go be around somebody. That's weird, I acknowledge it, it's awkward, okay? But we're gonna do it anyway. Um, we're gonna demonstrate some courage and, and here are the two questions I want you to talk about um, in your little groups. First, uh, identify someone that you know that you think demonstrates these two values, relational IQ and courage. Who do you know that you think demonstrates relational IQ and courage? And, and why, how, how do you, where do you see that in their life? And second, identify an area in your own life where you want to grow in these two values. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's an environment, your work environment, school environment, your neighborhood, but identify an area or relationship in your own life where you wanna grow. And then after two minutes of conversation, uh, we'll all pray together. I'll close this with prayer. We're gonna pray for each other that we grow in these values and move toward Jesus-centered living together. We good? Would everyone please stand? Okay. Take two minutes and answer those two questions with some people around you. Thank you.